Susan Humes, Rebecca Langer, and I returned from our mission trip in Haiti on Wednesday night, and I don't know about them, but I feel completely fragmented and scattered as if I have entered into a completely new universe. And in fact, a visit there and a return here reminds me how much distance there is between us. In going, I was able to see the integrity and the power of the mission that we support called Foncoze. That's F-O-N-K-O-Z-E, Foncoze. I knew about it through our members here, uh, trusting those members, Michael Fisher, Rebecca, others, the Global Outreach Committee, but I didn't know how important that mission is. You will hear many stories from that trip, but today that's all I will say, as I think it needs time to stew a little. This morning I'm going to preach from the book of Acts. It's written by the same writer as the Gospel of Luke. It comes to us from the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 8. It's about the struggles and the rise and the joys of the early church. Basically, the book of Acts is about the early Christians spreading the gospel from the center of Jewish and Jerusalem faith, where it was founded at its birth, into the rest of the world empowered by the Holy Spirit. The first big question that the early church had to face as Jews and Christians was this. Who is included? Specifically, the Gentiles, those Roman, Greek, or Arabs, uncircumcised, pagan, and impure, are they in too? And if so, will they have to become Jewish through their religious vows and rituals in order to be included? Sadly, in our time, this question has been completely reversed. Today, I am often asked the question, will the Jews be saved even if they do not believe in Jesus? The Bible seems to have decided this early on in the calling of Abraham and Sarah when it said as the father of the Jews to Abraham, I call you to be a blessing to all people. The question for the early church, for them, Jews, was whether Gentiles will be in. This is the crucial question for Luke, and he devotes 66 verses to it in Acts, ending in this morning's passage. Previously, Peter is led by a vision to see Cornelius and to have table fellowship with him that involved ritually impure, non-kosher food. Cornelius was a Roman army officer, the arch enemy of the Christians. When the other disciples in Jerusalem heard about Peter going to Cornelius, they called him in to explain, and Peter's speech serves as the pivotal point for the sea change of the mission in the church from 
Judaism and Jerusalem out to the Gentiles and the rest of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit does beginning with Pentecost. I'm reading from the translation known as the message. You are welcome to read along, but I suggest you just listen. Beginning in the first verse of chapter 11, the news traveled fast, and in no time the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem heard about it, heard that the non-Jewish outsiders were now in. When Peter got back to Jerusalem, some of his old associates concerned about circumcision called him on the carpet. What do you think you're doing rubbing shoulders with that crowd, eating what is prohibited and ruining our good name, they asked. So Peter, starting from the beginning, laid it out for them step by step. Recently, he said, I was in town of Joppa, and I was praying, and I fell into a trance and saw a vision, something large like a blanket lowered by ropes at its four corners came down out of heaven, and it settled on the ground in front of me, and milling around on the blanket were farm animals, wild animals, reptiles, birds, you name it, it was there. Fascinated, I took it all in. Then I heard a voice, go to it, Peter kill, and eat. I said, oh no, master, I've never so much as tasted food that wasn't kosher. The voice spoke again. If God says it's okay, it's okay. This happened three times, and then the blanket was pulled back up into the sky. Just then, three men showed up at the house where I was staying, sent from Caesarea to get me. The Spirit told me to go with them, no questions asked. So I went with them, I and six friends, to the man who had sent for me. He told us how he had seen an angel right in his own house, real as his next-door neighbor, saying, send to Joppa and get Simon, the one they call Peter. He'll tell you something that will save your life. In fact, you and everyone you care for. So when I got there, I started talking. Before I'd spoken half a dozen sentences, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on us the first time. And then I remembered Jesus' words, John baptized with water, he said, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So I ask you, if God gave the same exact gift to them as to us when we believed in the Master Jesus Christ, how could I object to God? Hearing it all laid out like that, they quieted down, and then as it sank in, they started praising God. It's really happened. God has broken through to the other nations, opened them up to new life. And this is the word of the Lord. There's a great scene in an old Betty Davis movie all about Eve when At a big party, she climbs up two steps on the stairwell, turns around and crows, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. This could stand as the moniker for the Holy Spirit and the early church in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit blows in, fasten your seatbelts. 
take Peter, the rock upon whom the early church was built, and to this day the Roman Catholic Church still claims that. He didn't start out too great, if you remember. It was Peter who questioned Jesus when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am? Peter said, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus said, well, you know, the Messiah must suffer and die. And Peter said, not you. It was Peter who called Jesus on the carpet, which led Jesus to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It was Peter who refused to have his feet washed when Jesus did so the night before he was crucified. It was Peter along with two other disciples who fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus had asked him expressly to stay awake. It was Peter who denied Jesus three times beside the fire the night Jesus was convicted. But by the time the book of Acts comes around, Peter had become not only a rock, but a rock star. The Billy Graham of the first church, he no longer was afraid after the Spirit came, and he began to preach like a madman wherever he got the chance. Peter the Rock, the foundation upon whom the church would be built and stand. And Peter knew better than anyone that that foundation was built on the footings of Judaism for they were all Jews. An important role that organizations and institutions serve is to maintain the foundational core values and to enforce the rules. Without that, there is nothing to stand on when things get tough. As such, institutions work to keep things status quo. Families do the same thing. To serve as a check against the solo effects of one person who thinks that they are more enlightened and progressive than anyone else and can change the whole system. Think about how Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have threatened the institutional status quo of both the Republican and Democratic parties. Without that institutional foundation, the house will fall when any will uh, ill wind blows. The drawback, though, is that this leads institutions to push for conformity, to funnel any differences in divergence into smaller standards of acceptance. In the early days, the church, under incredible stress and facing threat, this always happens more in the midst of threat, brought this tendency to bring into conformity everyone who was brought near. Conformity to Judaism, conformity to their rules, it all started there. Which is why this surprising story is so subversive to the institutional church. By now, in Acts, we know that St. Paul is out preaching to the Gentiles, proclaiming to those who were uncircumcised, the men, eating non-kosher food with the pagans, preaching that the good news of Jesus Christ had come for them too. But that was Paul. Paul was, he was an outsider. 
He had gotten his discipleship by a questionable encounter with Jesus on the road. He wasn't one of the original 12. And besides, he was the one who persecuted the Christians in the old days. They didn't really trust him. But Peter, too, the rock, it would have been like Steve Jobs deciding to merge with Microsoft. When the leaders in Jerusalem heard about this, they called Peter into an executive session wanting an explanation. How could he, on his own, decide that this outsider, this Roman army officer who did not follow kosher, how could he eat with him and share fellowship? And worse, by virtue of his baptism and not his circumcision, you decided that he was now included into the family of faith? So Peter tells them that when God blows through with the Holy Spirit, God shows no partiality. Neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free, Paul said later. And Peter said earlier, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. This is the, this is the point, the pinnacle point, where everything changed regarding who was in and who was out. Instead of funneling everyone clearly into the defined conformity of the institution, Peter blows the whole thing out of the water and the whole walls of the institutional church fanned out to include every corner of the world. And the genius of this is, this is why the early church grew at such a phenomenal pace early on, because it affected so many and included so many. If we could reclaim that message again, if we could tell that story again, when I hear from people who are no longer in the church or never have been, especially from young people, millennials, what I hear most often is their criticism that the establishment or institutional church is small-minded protected and exclusive, a cult of like-minded conformist. The last thing that millennials want is to conform to institutional and established rules. But the message, the good news, is that at its beginning, the church, when she was her most and best Holy Spirit-led, has always broken with convention and gone against the establishment by insisting on inclusion for all people. Our message is simply this. God in Jesus Christ has acted to accept us, embrace us, all of us, showing no partiality regardless of our race or gender, orientation or politics regardless of what we have done or not done. Maybe the church has stopped growing because we have forgotten this at our core value. I am frequently more saddened 
that the church, as well as everything else, is becoming more and more segregated and fragmented by our narrower and narrower theological and political and moral values. But to me, this story seems to call that into question and to say that before any of that, how you believe, how you behave, before any of that, it's this, that we belong. Accepted by God, no one more or less than anyone else. This is a huge fan, the Holy Spirit waves, and the more we can let it blow on us, the more aware of how large our God is and how large our lives are. That said, we must be careful. I've used the metaphor of a fan versus a funnel because I think it symbolizes the church when we are at our best. But this does not mean that anything and everything goes A fan is only functional if it stays connected to the hand of God, in this case. The hand that moves it. From the power of God, we act. Through the act and life of Jesus Christ, we receive our energy. Our confession becomes the center, the nexus, the point of faith from which we flow everything else which makes our story primarily about God's turning toward us in Jesus Christ, accepting us, including us into the family of faith. It is this God who takes me just as I am without one plea, as the great Baptist hymn goes, but encounters with this God do not leave us just as we are. Cornelius received the good news of the gospel, but he had to accept that he was accepted. He agreed to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and it's called repentance. It doesn't mean confessing your faith. It doesn't mean accepting Jesus as your personal Savior necessarily, or that you must perform some good deed. Instead, Repentance simply means that you respond joyfully to God's offer of himself in Jesus Christ. And he did. He was baptized. He turned, or rather returned, to the ground of love. So for us, not just once, but constantly, we will continue to repent to turn our lives in the direction of the one who has turned toward us in Jesus Christ, showing no partiality, and keeps turning toward us as many times as is necessary before we finally get it in this life or in the next, as an individual or as an institution. Peter ends his defense to the board of directors with these words. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? So the story ends not only with Cornelius' repentance, but the whole church's repentance too, for they were turned as well. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, the status quo was expanded and the fan grew large enough to cover the world. And the passage goes at its end, hearing it all laid out like that, they quieted down. And then as it sank in, they started praising God. It's really happened. God has broken through to the other nations, opened them up to new life too. Amen. Let us stand and say the Apostles' Creed. We do not have to believe everything that we say in this creed. while still being Christians. But we do confess this creed because it is more about God's act to us than it is about our own beliefs and behaviors. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born under Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.